Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Ring them bells, ye heathen, from the city that dreams. Ring them bells from the sanctuary, across the valleys and the streams. For the deep and the wide, and the world's on its side. And time is running backwards, and so is the bride. So that's uh, Jubilant Sykes, a classically trained singer singing Ring Them Bells, which is a Bob Dylan song. And the reason we're opening the show with that instead of, I don't know, maybe Bob Dylan. <laughs> this is a show about Bob Dylan, by the way, apropos of his 80th birthday, which is May 24th. We're talking about Bob Dylan. And, you know, to me, I, I, I should just lay my cards on the table and say I'm so not a Bob Dylan scholar, completist, or I'm like I'm almost anything but. Um, they're just there's holes in my understanding of Bob Dylan you could drive a truck through um, on the other hand I have thoughts about him because you can't be I'm 66 you know, you can't be from my generation and I have thoughts about him one of the things that I often think about him is that he has written some really incredibly beautiful melodies melodies that really soar this is one of them um, and that sometimes it's rather helpful to have somebody, <laughs> somebody interpret them, uh, somebody uh, like Jubilant Sykes. But we'll come to all that. Uh, what we're going to do is uh, just kind of explore. There's no way to do the Bob Dylan show. You can only do a Bob Dylan show. So we're going to do a Bob Dylan show with some really, really, really good guests. Uh, and in fact, joining us here for the first couple of segments are Noah Behrman, a pianist, composer, educator, very frequent guest with us. Uh, and so happy to have him. Uh, and Sean Latham, uh, the director of the University of Tulsa's Institute for Bob Dylan Studies, the editor of a new book, The World of Bob Dylan, uh, and uh, and much more besides. We're going to talk about this BBC4 thing uh, also as we, we go along here. But so, Sean, first of all, welcome to our show. Thanks. It's a great pleasure to be here. So, you know, I don't know. This morning, thinking about Bob Dylan, I wound up thinking of a different poet, Walt Whitman, who says... Do I contradict myself? Very well. Then I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. And that's sort of Dylan, right? I mean, how does the person who walked off the Ed Sullivan show over the issue of censorship agree to perform only approved songs in Beijing decades later? How does the guy who insisted on singing Masters of War at his Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award presentation just as the 1991 Persian Gulf War is breaking out also fail to express solidarity with uh, Chinese uh, oppressed dissidents on that occasion? How does the pure artist appear in a Victoria's Secret commercial? How does the keen, iconoclastic musical intellect put out a goofy and seemingly unironic Christmas album? How do you become synonymous with music, suffused with principle, and then sell the commercial rights to the times they are changing to the Bank of Montreal? What do we make of the Christian period and the d- 
different approaches to live performing, some of which seemed almost calculated to alienate his fan base as they came to his concerts. And this guy, there's just so much to work with, Sean. And I'd like you in about 90 seconds to answer all of the questions I just asked. <laughs> Whew, that's going to be quite a race. Yeah, Let me see yeah. if I can talk. No, no, fast. no, you don't have to do that. Uh, but I mean, I think you're right. And it's, you know, we should keep in mind, actually, that Dylan just released a new album last year uh, called Rough and Rowdy Rays, which has a track on it called I Contain Multitudes. Right. So, I mean, he's well aware of that connection and he's well aware of sort of, I think, of himself working in the tradition of somebody like Walt Whitman. Um, that is, as a poet, in my view, who is trying to take as broad a sampling of American popular music culture as he can and then remix it within his own imagination. And for me, that's how you understand all the many different Dylans. I, I agree. There's no one Dylan. There's no one Dylan show. There's no one Dylan book. That's why I've edited a collection rather than trying to say, here's my definitive Dylan, because he's a fractal kind of creature. You know, you're only he's always going to look different depending on what scale or what position you look at him from. But I think when you try to step back and understand all of the prisms, all of the prismatic um, sort of structures of Bob Dylan, you're going to hear a guy that is restless and relentless in his exploration of American popular music traditions from rock to folk, uh, to country, to the blues, uh, to gospel, to the crooning albums that he released recently. I mean, he wants to take it all in and that even includes those Christmas songs, which are a really strong and important part of American popular music. So Dylan, I, you know, my, my, Nine second version of Dylan would be Dylan is a great historian of American music. And as an historian who becomes an artist, he mixes all that stuff together to produce, I think, really interesting and exciting art. Right. So, Noah, another way that we could think about it in a way that doubtless tempts you, tempts you. I should say, as we're doing this, Noah's got this very interesting Facebook thread going where he's got jazz musicians and jazz aficionados kind of chiming in on some of these questions. Uh, and, and somebody has sort of gone a little bit off the beaten path to point out, and I did not know this, and it's hilarious that there is actually a clip of Dylan and his band performing Freebird, you know, which is this thing that people shout out kind of as a joke request to almost anybody who's performing, uh, except that I'm sure that Bob Dylan, you know, had heard that 20 times and said to his band, you know what, one of these days we should play Freebird just, just, just to do that. But that's hilarious. That's funny. But I mean, Noah, I'm guessing one of the temptations for you would be just just deal with the art, you know, and not have all these kind of side conversations about the stuff that I just brought up. Is that possible, though? Um, I feel like it. It's. I mean, anything's possible, but <laughs> I'm not sure that uh, it's necessary. At least for me. I mean, part of what's fascinating, uh, uh, acknowledging my bias that as a jazz musician and also as someone who was into the Grateful Dead as a teenager, I'm particularly into artists who are restless in the pursuit of discovery. And, um, and so for me, while you could look at the art, there's plenty of wonderful Dylan music to look at in isolation from this broader context. To me, it's all fascinating through the lens of how vigorously he pursued whatever interested him in a given moment. And, as with folks like John Lennon or Stevie Wonder or Herbie Hancock, people who are very diverse in what they pursue stylistically, um, I find it interesting and um, well-intentionedly misguided maybe when, when folks uh, cherry pick, oh, well, you know, this is the terrible period of that artist's work and um, you shouldn't listen to that and why did they do that? And you don't have to like 
anybody's entire catalog, but you know, you wouldn't have the the weird stuff that Stevie Wonder did. You wouldn't have My Sherry Amour or You Are the Sunshine of My Life or these superstition, these sort of universally beloved tunes if you didn't also have some of the funky experimental stuff he did or you wouldn't have Imagine from John Lennon without Revolution 9 and like the the full scope of unfettered creative exploration is what allows Dylan to produce a um, knocking on heaven's door or like a Rolling Stone, these things that are pretty universally beloved. Uh, you know, you, you need to forgive him um, doing the things that you maybe don't like. Like I love the really casual stuff, like the, um, the self-portrait album things where you're just kind of seeing, and I don't necessarily love all of that music, but from in that spirit, it's wonderful to just get a glimpse of his process, his creative mm -hmm. process. And you kind of have to take all of it and all of those contradictions personally and musically if you if you're going to take any of it well you know i want to maybe sean throw this back to sean and maybe build on this a little bit and at some point we're actually going to have to hear bob dylan sing here we've been talking for a while and the one thing we haven't heard is bob dylan but let me just get to that in a second but sean one of the things that i started thinking just getting ready for this show is and i don't mean to be a jerk about this this is going to sound like kind of a jerky statement but he's he's smarter than his fans his fans will punish him for any way in which he kind of deviates from their foreordained idea of who he is, most of which, most of these suppositions were formed probably in the first, I don't know, what, seven to ten years of his career. And in that, you know, I mean, he's a really smart person, so he's going to be attracted to the things that a really smart person is attracted to. He's, uh, he's going to explore um, different musical ideas. You know, if you're really smart and you're musical, you're going to turn to the American Songbook at a certain point, you know. I mean, all these kinds of things. And I think there's also piled on top of that, um, just to get back to something you were saying, if it's a 50-50 choice about doing something, um, Dylan will use what would piss off my fans the most <laughs> as the thing that'll tip the scale, it'll get them to 51 over 49. But you're, you know more about this. React to what I'm saying. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't know if I would put it that way. And I, you know, I think Noah is absolutely right in the way that he described what Dylan does. And I, so I'm not sure he's, he's smarter than his, than his fans necessarily, but he, he basically makes a comment at some point along the lines of, I never wanted to become fat Elvis. That is, I didn't want to become the guy that was going to go to Vegas, have my name on a casino and play the same songs in the same style for an aging audience. Dylan is absolutely relentless and is in his, in his vision and is it, I, in his desire to create new kinds of music. He's always wanted to create new stuff and he's drawn as 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 noah's saying to different kinds of things and sometimes we may not get it as fans what he's doing but he's interested in it and he's digging in and i can tell you when you look at the materials that we have here at the, at the bob dylan archive there's over over a hundred thousand objects at the bob dylan archive with notes and drafts and all that kind of stuff and what you see in Dylan is a guy that is constantly listening, constantly reading, constantly taking notes, constantly seeing how he can recombine stuff, rejecting 10, maybe 20 lines for every line that he keeps. Uh, you know, it is a kind of relentless process of investigation for Dylan. And yeah, when it comes out in an album, it may sound totally different because we didn't realize he was actually out there. I mean, I can tell you like before he made Nashville Skyline, there's this great notebook that's just filled with top 20 country 
songs from that period that he's just clearly hearing on the radio and writing down like i want to come back to this i want to come back to this uh the self-portrait album that noah mentioned there's a notebook that contains all of the candidate songs for what was going to be on that album which at the time everybody absolutely hated real marcus famously said you know what is this stuff i can't believe dylan's released this right people uh, are all actually when you look at that list yeah i'll tell you it is the roadmap for everything dylan will go on to do he's got he's got the crooners in there he's got country music he's got more kinds of blues he's got choral songs it's all just listed in there and he says this is me and he never stops in some ways coming back to that list and saying, i'm going to dig into this piece of me or this piece of me or this piece of me yeah I, I, we should actually play a little bob dylan because that's who we're here to talk about. And we're going to play, uh, actually, Noah's favorite song, A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. Uh, this comes to us from 1963, The Freewheeling Bob Dylan. Oh, where have you been, my blue-eyed son? And where have you been, my darling young one? I've stumbled on the side of 12 misty mountains. I've walked and I crawled on six crooked highways I've stepped in the middle of seven side forests I've been out in front of a dozen dead oceans I've been ten thousand miles in the mouth of a graveyard And it's a hard, it's a hard it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard rain you're gonna fall. One thing we are not going to do is play that song in its entirety, because it really goes on. Um, so, uh, Noah Behrman, uh, why is that your favorite Bob Dylan song? Is that something you can articulate? I'll do my best. I, I mean, the word evocative gets thrown around a lot, but... Um, I think one of the things that draws me often to instrumental music is that sometimes it can evoke a complexity of emotion that goes beyond things that could be simply defined narratively. Like most songs, you could actually give the Reader's Digest version in two sentences, this is what the lyrics are about. And a song like this, it's so emotionally affecting and yet in a way that could not be put forth. And, and the way he delivers it is so emotional. But these lyrics could not be summarized, really. They couldn't be... Um, th there's no way to make something that evokes these particular emotions using more straightforward language of defining what those emotions are. That yeah, kind no. Of makes sense. I, well, no, I, I know what you're talking about too. Partly, I mean, this is my own very personal reaction to it. But yeah, I don't know if you're listening to, I don't know, the way you look tonight. Uh, there's a sense in which one line leads to another. <laughs> uh, that you know, they're sort of building to a certain sentiment. Whereas, yeah, I mean, my, the way that I relate to this, there was a an '80s cover band. It's the same second time I mentioned them recently, and they used to have me come up on stage once during their shows to do "Pump It Up," the Elvis Costello tune, <laughs> which is another song where one line doesn't set up. The next line you just have to either you know the next line or you don't and i think that's what you're part of what you're saying here is that you know th this, these lines work as evocative poetry they they don't necessarily you know lead from one to two to three to four uh and and as a result yeah as a result they really make you feel something but mm -hmm. the thing they make you feel is sort of like a color that's not 
on the color wheel. It's it's it makes you feel something that you wouldn't have been able to identify before this song brought it out of you, which right. is what the the best Coltrane does or the best um, old school you know rural blues does. Well, you know, and Sean, and this is something I was listening to the BBC thing uh, that you you've done too, and I think you mentioned that by the time of the the post-motorcycle accident kind of underground basement tapes, Dylan's really getting interested in the Bible. But the truth is, he's always been interested in the Bible. This is a very biblical song. All along the watchtower is totally Isaiah. You know, I mean, there's a way in which when people were really shocked by the three-album, you know, so-called Christian period, well, they shouldn't have been too shocked, should they? I mean, he's been exploring these questions of Scripture and salvation pretty much from the jump. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And of course, those questions are written into the to the musical traditions that he's experimenting with. The blues are are often written over questions of prophecy and suffering. I mean, they are they are biblical stories of dread in their own way. And I think that's part of what's drawn Dylan in. I think, you know, folk music often takes its stories and some of its conceits and metaphors from biblical parables and structures. So the, the Bible's there because as Dylan says at the end of his career, I've always found the religiosity in the music, right? He sort of, this is just after he had his, his heart condition and it nearly killed him. And he said, the religiosity for me is in the music. I don't necessarily keep with rabbis or priests anymore, but that's where I find my faith. And that music is built around, you know, especially in the American tradition, it's built around these these biblical stories of prophecy and judgment. So yeah, I don't I don't think we should be surprised that Dylan uh, explores it across his music. And when you get to that Christian period, that's Dylan looking at gospel music, the other side of black musical experience in America, not the blues, not songs that are about suffering and deprivation, but this other musical tradition about black uplift, about black community, about black resilience. You know, I, I just, you know, I, I did open the show with Jubilant Sykes doing Ringing Them Bells. And, and I do, I, I this is sort of, can get us into trouble, but let's get into trouble if we need to. So, you know, at the time of Dylan's introduction to American music fans, he was sort of simultaneously introducing himself. And he was also, I think it's fair to say, being introduced by a lot of cover versions by people who were, I'll just say, more palatable singers than he is. Like, for example, I, I think it's actually true that before he got a, I mean, Sean will know, uh, before he got a recording of Don't Think Twice, It's All Right, uh, on vinyl, these people had already recorded. It ain't no use to sit and wonder why, babe. It don't matter anyhow And it ain't no use to sit and wonder why, babe If you don't know by now When the rooster crows at the break of dawn Look out your window and I'll be gone You're the reason... So that's Peter Ball and Mary. And so... Sean, there's sort of a way where, you know, I don't know, we're always dealing with our parents. So uh, if I was playing the Bob Dylan version of, you know, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall to My Father, my father got up, would have gotten up and walked out of the room, you know, just the same way that a lot of baby boomers will get up and walk out of the room if you try to play Nas or Cardi B for them now or something. <laughs> but, but, you know, there's a way in which there was a sort of gateway. And I think Peter, Paul, and Mary with Blowing in the Wind and this song and some other stuff and some of the other people who early on covered it in a slightly more accessible way may have done him a huge favor. 
Oh, I think that's true. And, and, and I think we'll continue to do him that favor for decades to come. You know, I'm a, I'm a literary scholar by training. And so I'm, I'm going to defer to Noah, who's, who's the real expert here. But the thing that's amazing to me about Dylan as a songwriter uh, is, and, and how, how it makes it different than stuff I spent part of my rest of my life thinking about is there's never going to be a cover of James Joyce's Ulysses, right? Nobody's <laughs> going to sort of do Ulysses in their own style or something like that. But with songs, you know, it's amazing. I mean, we, we talked about all along the Watchtower earlier, Jimi Hendrix took a good song and made it into an astonishing song when mm -hmm. he covered that. Peter, Paul and Mary arguably did the same thing with Blowing in the Wind or Regina Spector when she played it recently at the Women's March on Washington. The, you know, the ability of these songs to live on, and this is, we know this is important to Dylan, he said it in his Nobel acceptance speech, the ability of these songs to live on in performance and on stage, I think that's part of what makes them so amazing. Dylan's created sort of the outline of a house, and each musician gets to come in here and build their house in their own way. And doing so, they reveal whole new rooms, whole new ideas, whole new connections and traditions. And that's a that's a process of constant discovery and revelation. But no, I feel like that's a process that jazz, the jazz world's way more comfortable with. You know, Coltrane can cover Richard Rodgers, big deal. You know, um, and, and whereas I think within this world, there's this idea of like, oh, you like that Peter Paul and Mary version? It's like saying you like the Sean Colvin version uh, uh, of this must be the place better than you like uh, the David Byrne version. There are people who really regard that as some kind of softening of your aesthetic, you know, or a, a sweet tooth that you shouldn't have. And I think it's very different from how jazz looks at this. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, jazz is certainly not uh, free of purists. <laughs> no, but, it's not. Uh, but yeah, I think it's interesting how there are people with uh, Dylan's music who are purists from either end. Or maybe not purists, but there there are Dylan purists where his version of every song is the best. And then there are people who say, well, I can't stand his voice, but I love his songs. And so the only way to hear his songs is to hear other people performing them. Um, and I think, I mean, it's it's interesting to me that Dylan himself is not another difference. Dylan himself is not particular in that way. Like, it, it's not a big deal in the jazz world for jazz musicians to cover Tin Pan Alley standards. But a lot of those original composers actually really disliked hearing jazz musicians by their estimation mangling their material. Oh, Richard Rogers, he, Richard Rogers wanted to, he wanted to sue people for it. I think he wanted to sue the Marvelettes or somebody because like they were because <laughs> they were singing it wrong. He thought he could actually sue them. And Oscar Hammerstein explained to him that that would be actually a commercially bad idea that they were going to get paid a lot more <laughs> for that song. It, just as Dylan got paid way more for the Peter, Paul and Mary stuff than he was going to make doing it himself. So um, there's and, that, yeah. and the thing is, he himself was reinventing his songs on the road. So it's uh, it would have been insane for Dylan to be a purist about interpretations of his own material when he himself wasn't even viewing what wound up on the studio version, uh, a studio recording as being the definitive way to do something. It was what he happened to, how he happened to conceive the song at that moment when he was rolling tape. All right, we got we got to go out of this segment, but I'm going to have Sean set up the song that we leave this segment with. We're going to end with Blind Willie McTell, which Sean uh, believes maybe Dylan's finest composition. In like 60 seconds, uh, make the case for that, Sean. 
Yeah, I mean, as you said, I think this is an absolute masterpiece. It's amazing to me when he recorded it for the Infidel Sessions that he did not release it then. Uh, it took nine years for him to decide to release this song. Uh, and it's a song that Dylan, at the end of his career, Dylan had started his career by covering black bluesmen and often in ways that would sound very close to appropriation, almost a kind of musical blackface to us now as he tries to be Blind Lemon Jefferson as a 20-year-old Jewish kid from Minnesota. This song, uh, by the time he composes it, is about the long racist and racial history of American music and Dylan reflecting on the fact that no matter what we do with popular music, we're never gonna get away from the fact that it has this racial component in minstrel shows, in, in, in the blues, uh, you know, in, in the ways that various kinds of white culture have always appropriated black music, black sounds, both in, through acts of what Eric Lott has called love and theft. And this is Dylan trying to take full stock of that and say, even though I've become a great blues man myself, I'm now part of blues history, I'll never be able to perform the blues the way the original black performers could. I can never quite touch that experience. Nobody can sing the blues like Blind Willie McTell. All right. Uh, here's that song, uh, and we'll be back. All the way from New Orleans to Jerusalem I traveled through East Texas Women in my dress fell And I know no one can sing the blues Like blind Willie down Well, I heard that hoot I'll sing it As they were taken down Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health.
All right, you know where we're going now. Uh, but we're talking about Bob Dylan and Noah Behrman, pianist, composer, educator, still with us. Sean Latham, editor of the new book, The World of Bob Dylan, uh, still with us. And from that book, Gail Walt, uh, professor of American Studies at George Washington University. She wrote the chapter. Uh, on gospel music, uh, and uh, I, I want to home in as much as possible, uh, although you really can't confine, as we sort of said in the previous segment, you can't really confine Dylan's interest in gospel music, or for that matter, biblical issues, to this period of self-professed uh, Christian salvation. But it's a really interesting time to, to think about. So first of all, Gail, uh, welcome to our show. Hi, thanks for having me. And maybe the first thing to say about this is that this song, although it was regarded as you know a de- departure bordering on betrayal uh, by some of Dylan's fan base for for the song itself to be accompanied by this new version of, of Dylan is essentially a born again Christian. Um, it was also an incredibly popular song, especially for him. It cracked the top forty. It might have been the last time, the most recent time, he cracked the top forty with a song. Yeah, until until just recently, um, it definitely was. And um, what I was interested in um, when I was thinking about how to kind of conceptualize Bob Dylan and gospel was to partly to go beyond the notion that um, gospel could primarily be defined in his career as kind of the the Christian period. This moment, as you're saying, when he um, surprised, disappointed, angered um, a lot of fans by becoming a born-again Christian and spending the better part of three years um, really not performing any of his previous, quote-unquote, secular catalog um, and using his concerts um, to proselytize. Right. So, yeah, and we said in the preceding segment, too, I mean, sort of musicologically, but also thematically, I mean, starting with things like All Along the Watchtower, I mean, he's just talking about the gospel and drawing from the gospel, and the sound is there. Uh, One of the things that you really explore a lot in in your chapter is the influence of women singers uh, whom he had worked with uh, prior to this and and then during this period, too, uh, in terms of bringing him musically to this point. Maybe you can say a little bit more about that. Sure. Um, I'm really fascinated with, uh, you know, in general, in the topic of of, um, female musicians, women musicians, and Bob Dylan, um, and and kind of uh, thinking about the ways that women have played an important part in his career. And what I found is that when you approach the career from the point of view of gospel music, and kind of gospel aesthetics, um, the kind of principles of gospel that are familiar to anyone who's a fan of gospel, that what you get, what you what you uncover is um, the importance of Black women, not only to Bob Dylan's own musical formation, but to his aesthetic and to the ways that he fashioned him, has fashioned himself as a performer. So, it ends up being through the lens of gospel that you can really look closely at um, the importance of uh, the folk singer Odetta, who also did gospel and spirituals. She's known as a folk singer, but also figures like uh, Mavis Staples and the many uh, women, accomplished women who were in and out of Dylan's um, bands during that period of the late 70s through the early 80s when he was in the gospel period. So, and usually those women are kind of thought about as backing musicians, but I was really interested in trying to think about the relationship between um, Dylan as the 
main performer and kind of what it meant to be backed up and in a sense musically held and in a musical dialogue with uh, mostly a group of black women. I 100% agree with the thing you just said and I have a little gloss to put it on it myself. But before we do that, uh, our producer, Jonathan McPants, uh, wants you to hear uh, a, a little fade from Odetta uh, to uh, Dylan. Uh, well, anyway, th- this will explain itself. Here we go. All loved in jail Didn't have no one to go to be If give you hand Hold on Hold on Just in the interest of time, I'm going to fade that a little bit. I just wanted to say, I, I just was so moved by what you said there. And I, I, I should say also, I should confess that I was at one point a newspaper rock critic right around this time. I was probably the worst rock critic in America. I defy anyone to find somebody who was worse at the, jo- the job than I was. But I, I did see Dylan tour with the band that was doing stuff from Shot of Love and, and, and these two other uh, albums. I, I can't remember exactly what year it might have been. Playing a smaller venue, it was the Bushnell Hall here in Hartford, about 2,700 seats. And they were tight. They were tight in a way that some of these big stadiums bands that he'd been working with were not tight and and he had black gospel singers and it was just so clear that night that they were kind of keeping him honest that they couldn't do their job if he kind of defaulted back to his nobody knows what I'm going to do from minute to minute and it might be a really good idea or a really bad idea but I'm going to give each one of those equal weight anyway there was a sense in which this it was such a satisfying musical experience partly because yeah, I think it's what you said. They they kind of held him to his word musically. Mm-hmm. I think there was such an interesting um, combination of kind of uh, music, uh, spirituality, professionalism, kind of all mixed up together in that when you're talking about the kind of sound that they produced. You know, interestingly, this was, I mean, there are obviously, um, you know, musicians are parts of bands and bands have their own, uh, personalities and they have their own lives and they and then there's a lot of intimacy in touring groups. But this was a group that, um, you know, in addition to Dylan uh, have, pursuing romantic relationships periodically with different members of the backing group, um, you know, he was also praying before shows with the backing groups. So this is this kind of really interesting uh, kind of intimacy that um, was that infused the music, I think, but was bigger than the music. Yeah, no, I'd love to get the reactions of both of our other panelists uh, here right now. Sean, I'm sure you could talk about this for uh, four or five hours, but um, we don't have that. So there's a way in which, I don't know, I found this musically an exciting period and a lot of the music that was done an exciting period. But boy, there were an awful lot of people who just saw this as, as either he's lost his mind 
or he's just turning his back on everything we liked about him. I, I, maybe you can just put that in some kind of context. I mean, <clears throat> that's absolutely true. And, uh, you know, they're, they're famous sort of the attempts to almost replay those 1966 concerts during the Christian period where the fans are sort of shouting at Dylan. They want him to play his old songs. He's refusing to play anything from his back catalog during these live shows. At one point, he has, the, he has them turn up the lights and he's like, if you want to rock and roll, you should go down and listen to Kiss, right? Uh, <laughs> but this ain't Kiss, man. We're here to do something different. And, uh, and it's, it's Dylan sort of in that always agonized relationship with his audience, he's pursuing his own vision. He's not really interested in satisfying uh, the, the people that have shown up to see him play his old favorites. And, you know, I think one thing um, that I think we should be really grateful for at this point is that with the, with the opening of the Bob Dylan archive and with the ways that Dylan himself has been releasing these volume after volume of so-called bootleg tapes, what we got just a few years ago was one from this period. It's a collection of, I don't know, it's about 50 different tracks um, called Faith No More that takes you into all those concert performances. And they are, that's where you can see what, what Gail is describing is, is the way the band is working together on the stage, the way that Dylan is part of this larger community of musicians. It's not just the star out on front. He's, he's in that kind of full faith-based gospel tradition of trying to assemble a musical community and bring the audience into that community. And, and say some valuable stuff. And I and and when you see those things live rather than on the tracks that were laid down for the actual recording, those are some of Dylan's greatest concerts, I think. He's really working hard as a musician. I mean, you can literally see the sweat pouring off his brow as he's at the keyboards <laughs> trying to do duets with some astonishing singers. It is it is a great period musically, I think, in Dylan's career. It was very satisfying. So Noah, you know, I don't want to overextend the Noah Behrman, Bob Dylan analogy that so many other musicologists have, have dwelled on. But you know, I mean, I don't think about your recent work, you know, that has rocks and redemptions and, and really kind of explore, exploration, uh, uh, explorations of profound questions of life and death and, and what that means and what it means to be alive and, and how spirit can, can, can or can't inf- inform that. I don't know. I would expect you to have at least quite a bit of sympathy for this journey Bob Dylan took uh, at, at his appointed hour. I do, and I and I frankly love the music. I'm not a Christian, but I love his music from the so-called Christian period. I think the song "Gotta Serve Somebody" is sort of appropriate, more broadly, in the sense that I was just teaching about this actually. Um, but the he, uh, Dylan was sort of accidentally a pop star and was accidentally part of a folk community, but he didn't serve the marketplace and he didn't serve the folk community he served his own artistic vision and his own genuine expression which is something i obviously relate to so in terms of gotta serve somebody and so at a certain point that led down a spiritual path but uh but i think it's for as a musician it's worth noting that he to me that he had this bent of and i've said it before today, so sorry for repeating myself, of just going with the flow of what moved him. And because he was Bob Dylan, he had the resources to pull it off, you know. He had the resources to hire these wonderful singers who Gail writes about so compellingly in her chapter. And, uh, you know, other others who have the same impulse might not have the same resources to work with that level of musicians and uh, continue to reach that level of audience, even if on a certain level alienating some of them. 
All right. So we I wish we had a lot more time for this conversation, but I want to maybe have Gail talk about a song we're going to play here at the end. It was really the only Dylan song that I, I tried to rely on all these experts. But um, Ms. the producer, Mr. McPants, said, well, what do you want to hear? And I said, I think we should play the groom still waiting at the altar. And, and I'm going to tell you why. I think that, but I'd be interested to hear Gail on this too. You know, I mean, first of all, it's a weird song in the sense that it didn't appear on the original vinyl of Shot of Love uh, and it kind of got added in, in a, on other versions and I might have been on the cassette version. But to me, it, it his singing has gotten re-energized, I think, by the process, Gail, that you're talking about, you know, working with these incredible singers and trying to stay with them. Uh, he continues to write in, in very enigmatic, clever ways that are open to multiple interpretation. You could drop this as a new song right now and say it's about the fighting between uh, the uh, between Israel and the Palestinians, and people would go, yeah, he, clearly, obviously, he wrote it about that. Um, it catches him right at the end of this cycle of faith, and I think it's just a terrific song, too. But, but Gail, I don't know. I'd love to hear sort of your thoughts about this moment and, and what he's doing. Yeah, I, I really like your idea that the singing was re-energized. And I think that, um, you know, one of the things is that there, there's a particular lineage that I think he is digging into or, um, you know, both digging into and appropriating. And that's the lineage of the creative authority of the Black female gospel voice coming out of um, church institutions that empowered men rather than women to be spokespeople, but women kind of having, especially the female soloist, having a kind of um, spiritual and cultural authority. And so I do think that um, Dylan, in putting himself literally next to and surrounding himself by Black female singers who had occupied this space, you know, is kind of just um, trying to, you know, experience some of that cultural authority and that maybe it, 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 it explains a little bit, you know, the kind of care in, in using the voice as, as a primary instrument rather than the guitar. All right. So we're going to go out with this song and we won't, we'll just play a little bit of it. If you've never heard it before, if you don't know this song, you should actually track it down and hear the entirety of it. It's in, impressive. Got to say some thank yous here. A show like this one is a little bit more complicated, but more elements to it than some of the shows that we do. So you need a great technical producer. Fortunately, I have one. Her name is Kat Pastor. She's here right now making sure all the things happen the way they're supposed to happen. Uh, you also need somebody who's really willing to take a deep, deep dive. And Jonathan McPants, who is the producer of this episode, uh, was willing to do that too uh, and to think about it a different way uh, and find some terrific guests, including two that we're actually saying goodbye to right now, Noah Behrman, who's not just a guest, but a friend at this point. Uh, thanks to Noah for his early comments. Gail Wald, professor of American studies at George Washington 
University who wrote the chapter uh, about gospel music uh, in uh, this new book, The World of Bob Dylan, uh, and the uh, compiler of that book uh, and the man behind it is Sean Latham. He's still here. We may lose him a little bit before noon. I'm not sure, but he's the director of the University of Tulsa's Institute for Bob Dylan Studies, and he has written and narrated a new five-part BBC4 podcast, which I recommend. It ain't me you're looking for, Bob Dylan at 80. Uh, this is really helpful for me in getting ready for the show. And then speaking of things that you can find on the radio, Fred Bals uh, is joining us right now, uh, hosted the Dreamtime podcast covering Bob Dylan's Theme Time Radio Hour and his work for Bob Dylan from time to time. So before we even get into the theme time radio hour, I want to ask both of you the same question. Um, You know, and and Fred, uh, first of all, welcome to our conversation. Thank you, Colin. I think one thing that's kind of easy to miss about Bob Dylan, because there's so much weight and portent to some of these songs, some of these really iconic songs, is he's he seems to be a really funny person. I mean, I would maintain you can't write the line, Shakespeare, he's in the alley with his pointed shoes and his belt. I mean, you can't write that line if you're not looking, if you don't think it's funny. Uh, and, but, I mean, Fred, you'd be in a position to know. I mean, I listened to him doing that the, the most recent theme time uh, broadcast. This is a pretty funny guy. Yeah, he is a very funny guy. Uh if you're lucky enough, uh, at times in concert, he'll tell one of his uh, very old, moldy jokes. Uh, he seems to love uh, he seems to love making puns, and uh, he loved making those sort of jokes on Theme Time Radio Hour. If you heard uh, the latest episode, the whiskey episode, he uh, he makes a very involved joke uh, that somehow gets Edgar Allan uh, Edgar Allan Poe, uh, David Allan Coe. And pose the raven all mixed together. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, and Sean, I want to ask you the same question. I mean, Bob Dylan equals funny guy. I don't think that's people's default setting somehow, but I'm sure it's it must be really, really evident to you just pouring through all that stuff. Yeah, I think you I mean, you see it there in the vast output of the records. You see it in the performances, too. We've always wanted Dylan or many fans, I guess, have wanted Dylan to always be a romantic poet. Right. That he was always just going to be pouring heartfelt emotion um, out of his out of his mind or out of his heart onto the page. But as we know, when you look in the stuff in the archive, Dylan is working stuff over. He's reading broadly. He cares about all kinds of culture. And what makes him such a humane artist, ultimately, in the end, is that he can take in that huge sweep, I think, of of, of human experience, which includes humor. It includes being funny. It's not always tragedy and biblical prophecy all the time. He can always find uh, funny bits in there and he'll he'll embed it in the lyrics. He'll tell those kind of jokes that Fred is describing in a theme time radio hour, I think is more than any places where you get it. He's playing this fake DJ with a fake radio show with <laughs> fake fan mail. I mean, the whole thing is just an amazing comic setup. And early on, he compared himself to Charlie Chapman in one of his first interviews, right? I mean, right. And, uh, so he's, he's always had that comic element running through his work. I just want to say, I have a bootleg tape of one of Wordsworth's early stand-up uh, sets. He was a very funny guy, not just a romantic <laughs> poet. So, um, so Fred, just li- but listening to, I just, I did listen to the whiskey version of this, this, this show, which I think Sean just described really beautifully. And we should say the whiskey version has to do with the fact that he, there is a Bob Dylan whiskey that's called Heaven's Door. <laughs> It's real, and now I want to have some. But um, and so, but he, but this the guy that I'm hearing there is a guy I would want to just hang out with, which is not really. I've always thought that Bob Dylan would be impossible to hang out with. He seems so relaxed, and he's so conversant. Does he do all that stuff without notes or anything? He's just talking about the history of American music, 
you know, with this just incredible uh, base of knowledge. Yeah, well, he's lucky enough to have a uh, friend slash producer mm-hmm. who helps him uh, put together yep. theme time radio hour, a gentleman named Eddie Gordetsky, uh, who uh, is a uh, writer in Hollywood, uh, has done te- several television shows. In fact, uh, once talked Bob uh, into doing a uh, Dharma and Greg uh, episode where Dylan shows up at the very end and uh, uh, he and his band uh, audition uh, Dharma to uh, to play in the band and he does it totally deadpan throughout the entire thing. But Eddie uh, Eddie and, uh, and Dylan met because Eddie has one of the world's largest private uh, collections of music uh, available and Eddie used to send out uh, CDs and even before that cassette tapes of uh, weird and strange music that he would put to, uh, put together. Uh, one of those went to Bob Dylan. He and Bob Dylan became friends uh, for a while. Uh, Bob actually started a record label uh, which was going to feature Eddie's music. Unfortunately, that did not happen. But uh, Eddie turned out to become the producer of Theme Time Radio Hour and. Uh, when you listen to the announcer, Pierre Mancini, that's actually uh, Eddie Gorodetsky. Yeah, and you will hear the voices of Ellen Barkin and people like that. Uh, and this whole thing, I don't know, Sean, uh, you know, you, you made a great point about, about the, the, the Poe joke. But in general, what you were hearing here is, I, I guess, maybe, actually, I don't know which one of you I should ask this question to, but I'll ask you, Sean. This feels like maybe this is like really what Bob Dylan is like more than this complicated guy who's not sure he should accept the Nobel Prize. I mean, I can't speak at all to what Bob Dylan is like because uh, I don't I don't know the guy, but it's certainly one uh, one of the many aspects of his persona, and it's one I think it's really easy to enjoy. And I think it also makes it easy to overlook the fact that the Theme Time Radio Hour is one of the greatest seminars on the history of yes. American popular music that you can ever find. I mean, I, I teach Dylan all the time. I always tell my students, you know, the real course here is the one being taught by Dylan because each of those shows has a theme, baseball, mom, smoking, whiskey, whatever it might be. And he just kind of walks you through 10, 12, sometimes 15 different tracks that shows you how country music intersects with gospel music, intersects with rock music, intersects with, you know, Bing Crosby. I mean, it's just an amazing ability Dylan has to sort of pause for a moment and say, all this stuff is inside me. I'm going to show you the different ways that it might be combined. And you just then suddenly see this huge panorama of music that's clearly part of what Dylan's always hearing in his head when he sits down to actually write his own music. All right. We're going to have to stop there. We're going to have to stop there, unfortunately. And I wish we had more time. It was impossible. I knew we were going to get in trouble here. Fred Bowles hosted the Dreamtime podcast uh, and uh, covering Bob Dylan's Theme Time Radio Hour. Really track this down on your podcast feed or wherever and and listen to some episodes. And you'll it's exactly what Sean just said it was. And it's this enormously satisfying and kind of relaxing in a way that Bob Dylan kind of isn't a lot of the time. Sean Latham has been with us, director of the University of Tulsa's Institute for Bob Dylan Studies. Thanks to you for listening uh, and to my team for pulling this show off. And uh, here we go, off into the night. But we'll be back for another show very soon, like tomorrow. (laughs) 